0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Mother of Demons and Mollusk Warfare Techniques. It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, hardcover rain gonna fall. And the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, All Right Now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Eric Flint this time about the new Bain Leatherbound signed edition of his novel, his first novel, Mother of Demons. Eric gives us some insight into where the book comes from and discusses his early days as a Bane author. As always, it's Eric Flint, so it's fascinating stuff. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. First, here's the news. The new April hardcovers are set to rain down like manna from a loving sky, and appear at your favorite booksellers. I should add that I'm speaking figuratively, of course. I think. New in April is Trail of Fear by Travis S. Taylor. Hey, it's been a while since we had a new Travis book, since he's been pretty busy doing his science-based television shows. But lo, here's Trail of Fear. It's uh, a really cool high-concept book about an alien supercomputer who gets, well, some rather odd ideas about human beings when it takes some data out of context. Also out is Grantville, Gazette, Volume 7, with more tales of the modern-day West Virginia town of Grantville, which was thrown back in time to the 17th century in Europe and into the midst of the Thirty Years' War. Eric Flint's the editor, so you know there's plenty of good stuff therein. Trail of Evil and Grantville, Gazette, Volume 7, can be found at the end of the reading rainbow that leads to your favorite bookseller's special pot of science fiction gold. Anyway, check them out. want to welcome Eric Flint to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Hi, how are you, Tony? Eric Flint, back to the podcast, actually. He's been with us many times. He is the creator of the Alternate History Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, and continuing through many best-selling books, stories, and collaborations. Uh, with David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series, and He's collaborated with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Katie Wentworth, Dave Freer, and and Spore. Eric's latest novel with Reich is just out, by the way, and it's called Castaway Planet, which is one of the coolest titles of all, ever. <laughs> and uh, Eric's writing career began with the science fiction first contact novel, sort of first contact novel, Mother of Demons. Now, Bane is reissuing Mother of Demons in a limited leather bound edition that is available at booksellers but you better get it quick so Eric mother of demons may sound like a fantasy novel from the title but it's actually very much science fiction and it's it's hard science fiction like sociology well maybe soft science fiction can you give us a pricey a sort of overview of the book
2: yeah um, the truth is it's it's kind of really alternate history it's just a foul out the serial numbers because in this instance, the alternate um, universe is—it's a Bronze Age. What happens is modern people get cast back in the Bronze Age, but it's an alien Bronze Age. Um, and what I did was in, in the—in um, the way the wreck happens, the um, most of the survivors are children. There's only a handful of adults, so they really are kind of thrown on their own resources pretty quickly and what I wrote the story for so hard to explain but it it's 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 basically sort of my disquisition on how I think you have to look at human history which I know seems kind of ponderous but I think I successfully wove it into a, a you know an action-adventure novel but what happens in the book basically is that the the handful of human adults who survive are being, especially one who is a historian, are being turned to not only by the human, the young humans, but also by this alien species they encounter, which is in in a broadly stage of development for guidance on what to do. And the quandary that the heroine of the story has is that she knows human history quite well and knows that starting from the very primitive level of development that the aliens have, and for that matter, the human castaways, because they've lost most of their technical pace. There's really no quick, simple way to produce what she thinks of as a modern, civilized, advanced society without basically wading through centuries of toil and misery and bloodshed. And for a long time, and of course of the novel, she just finds a hard can't bring herself to do it. Um, the other important elements brought in the novel is that this alien species is in a Bronze Age development, but it's also right at the point in its history where the first of its version of the great universal religions has emerged about two generations earlier. Uh, so it's as if they arrived right after the founding of Buddhism. Um, and the central religious leader plays a key role in the way things develop. Um, so like I said, when I just picked it that way, I know
1: it sounds kind of ponderous, but um, <laughs> Well, there is a great deal of philosophical discussion in the in the novel, but there's lots of battles.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of action. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I swiped a lot of the plot. Uh, I got a master's degree in African history and actually swiped the plot from what I was doing my dissertation on, which was the history of the Southern Bantu in the early 19th, late 17th, early, early, late 18th, early 19th centuries. Americans are completely unfamiliar with this, but uh, my friend Dave Freer, who's South African, when he read the book, he, he started it right away. He knew what I was talking about. I basically used the the formate, combination of the formation of the countries of what's now called Lesotho and one of the great migrations of the time as sort of the model for the plot. So yeah, it's a, it got a lot of action in it. It's not slow-paced at all, but the underlying theme of it is is how... I think people need to look at human history. Do you look at it as being tragic? Do you look at it as being just, you know, an endless litany of, of stupidity and blunders? Or do you view it as basically quite heroic in its own way? And that is that is my view of it. Um, I have a basically quite positive attitude toward human history and development of human race, and that's what I tried to, to express in that novel. Um, there's a lot of ways in which everything I've written since then is kind of a commentary on that first novel. Uh, the same themes you'll find popping up over and over again in most of it, right? But again, like I said, I try not to make it ponderous, uh, and I think so
1: far I've succeeded. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable first novel. Uh, but before we get into the book itself, um, can you talk about how it came about? Um, Tony told me, Tony Weisskopf told me, she was the one who read it first as a submission. Um, we, you were a Writers of the Future winner just before? Um,
2: yes. Yeah, what happened was this. I, uh, I had, uh, the first novel I wrote was a novel called um, Ford the Mage, um, and I took part of, no, well, not that novel, but the companion novel, The Philosophical Strangler, and I, I rewrote it as a short story, and that's what I submitted to the Writers of the Future contest, and I won first place in the winter quarter based on that story. The problem I had was that uh For the Mage was the novel I was actually trying to sell. But the problem I ran into was that it's it's kind of a weird book, I'm being honest about it. It's it's um, it's sort of comic fantasy but it's uh um uh, it, it, it's 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 patterned after the novels of the seventeenth and eighteenth century, um, not modern fantasy. So it's a lot of it's social satire. Um, it it's really it's quirky. It is. There's no way around it. And the problem was that I really like the book. and I think it's a good book, but it's not an easy book to sell. Um, and. Uh, I had an agent, and she liked the book herself, but she warned me that this was gonna be a hard book to sell. and it proved to be In fact, we didn't ever did sell it We did eventually, but many years later and after about two years of trying to sell it, I told uh, my agent just pull it off the market because all we're doing is we're we're getting the kind of rejections that are sort of like, well, I really like it, but it's not suitable for our line or you know or this is really more mainstream than fantasy yeah. or we took it to mainstream publishers and their reaction was, this is more fantasy, you know. So, you don't want to rack up rejection letters like that because once a publishing house rejects a novel, they're not going to look at it a second time regardless of what the reason was. So, instead, by then, I I had written, I, I decided I'd write just a very, much more straightforward science fiction novel that would be much easier to sell. And that's when I wrote Mother of Demons. That was in the fall of 1993. And I wrote it really at a very fast pace. I had it written in about three months. Um, and we submitted that to several publishers and eventually the one that bought it, and it, it took a while, but the one that bought it was Bain. And uh, Tony was the first one who read it. It sat in Bain's life for quite a while. Tony was, the first, was then the chief editor. She read it and early in 1996, and she liked it and recommended it to Jim Bain, and then, you know, I had to wait. It took him a few months to read it. But that's how it came about. Yeah. Eventually, I did sell Forward to Mage, but many, you know, several years later when
1: Jim was by that point buying pretty much anything on mine. Um, yeah, we put that out. <laughs> anyway, that. Yeah. Huh? We put that out, right? Bain.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bain published it. Yeah. Being the second novel in that series I published the first one was called The Philosophical Strangler um, mm-hmm. you and I had written forward the mage first um, but I decided that Strangler would be a better way to introduce people into the series it, it, it really is pretty quirky um, I really like it but and you know it has it's fan based but um, it's 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 just not as much oriented to a popular audience as most of the things are
1: Tony told me that uh that she had recommended that you cut some stuff in Mother of Demons and you pushed back against that, and she thought you were ultimately right. Do you remember that?
2: Well, I I don't—what happened was this. Um, I don't remember that. What I do remember is that uh, I thought the book was too short, Um, but the reason was that my agent felt that for a first novel it would be— I'd have a lot easier time selling it if I um, if I tried to um, keep it to hundred thousand words. Um, and the problem is, the only way I could do that was I had to really, really pare down what I had intended to be a major subplot in the in the book. If if you're you know you've read the book, uh, so this will probably mean something to you. But the the character of Nakurin, who figures very prominently in the novel in the first draft didn't figure very much she only figured it at
1: the very beginning at the very end yeah she's one of the coolest parts of the book though yeah no i didn't like
2: doing that but uh my agent felt i kind of had to because uh you know it's the first novel etc cetera, etc cetera. well what then happened was that there was an aspect of the book jim didn't like which had to do with the mix of characters and so he wanted me to expand the book for that reason and that was fine with me because by doing that, I could expand, I could take care of what he wanted to take care of by mixing it up with expanding the current role back to the way I'd always originally envisioned it. So the first draft I submitted was 100,000 words, and the final draft of being published was 122,000 words. So I expanded quite a bit in the second draft. I don't remember any longer. It's been a long, long time. I don't remember. I, I have a memory Tony of something cut, but I don't honestly remember any longer exactly what it was. Um, and so I, I just can't say much about that.
1: Um, I think... It was a bunch of philosophical stuff is what she said. <laughs> so. She probably... Yeah, yeah. She,
2: it, you know, it, there's no question that putting that in was something of a gamble. I mean, it, it does make the book... And if you read, you know, Amazon reviews of it, you'll see a certain number of readers crabbing about it. Um, you know, you know, come um, on, yak yak, yak. What can get a little old is that the character of. Um, of the central human character, Indira Toledo, does a lot of hand-wringing, and that can get a little old. As I remember I Tony wanted to cut that back. I understood her point, but I actually think in the long run it's better that the novel came out the way it is. Um, but, you know, it's one of these judgment calls. Uh, Jim didn't seem particularly concerned about that side of it, so... You know, like I said, I, he actually didn't have a problem with expanding the novel quite a bit, which is what I really wanted to do. So, it all worked out pretty well in the end.
1: Yeah. Well, when I, I you said it was a hundred thousand, and I was like, that book is longer than that because I just <laughs> plowed through it on my Kindle, and it was a
2: final. Yeah, no, the final draft's quite a bit longer than that. Uh, oh. But when I originally wrote it, it, that's how long it was. It was a uh, hundred thousand words, and. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it works much better at the length in which it is. Um, part of what happens is that, see, I think what, if you, if you try to visualize the philosophical ponderings in that book without the character of the Nakurin is kind of a foil in a different kind of way than the human character is. So if you try to picture what the book would look like, see, in the first draft that I submitted to May, Nakurin only appears in the very beginning. And then she disappears from the entire book and only sir, comes back in again at the very end. Um, and it's really when you see everything through her eyes, because she's an outcast from Alien Society, that you get a different perspective on the kind of issues and problems that the human character Indira Toledo is wrestling with. Because the truth of the matter is Indira, has, Indira she's an academic. She's led a sheltered life is the simple truth of it, until the shipwreck. And whereas Nakuran comes from the lowest helic class of that alien society, and then just because of her military prowess becomes a famous soldier, warrior. But she really sees the underbelly of it. So from her point of view, she doesn't have a problem with the uh, hard-edged decisions that Toledo winds up having to make by the end of the book. And and if you take that out of the book, or if you don't have it there in the first place, I think it does unbalance the book and I can see why Tony would have that reaction. I I do think you'd have to do one of two things, either shorten the book or lengthen it. And what we wound up doing, which I think was a better way to do is lengthen it, but um, the original length was too constrained by just abstract considerations of space. As it turned out Jim Bain never really cared that much about length of books. Some publishers care a lot more than he did. And he just didn't have a problem with expanding a first novel by what amounted to twenty five percent.
1: Yeah. Well, um speaking of New and she's kinda of like this the the Achilles of giant snails, sentient snails. Um <laughs> But you mentioned that she's um, she's considered a pervert or uh, an outcast within her group because she's... What's wrong with a Gukui, uh, a sterile female and a true male? Getting what I
2: did, one of the things I wanted to do with the novel, I, I wanted to... I, I have for a long time been dissatisfied with the way alien species are usually portrayed in science fiction. There are a few exceptions, but... I just felt that way, way, way too often alien species were depicted one of two ways. Either what I'll call the Star Trek model, where they're basically just people with funny ears um, and funny foreheads, but, you know, they're basically humanoid, they're bipedal, all the rest of it. Um, or the other trope that a lot of authors use is a kind of biological determinism where they'll, they'll, they'll model... A, an alien species after a certain kind of terrestrial animal, and then they impart their culture is based on the ethnology and the behavior of that type of animal on Earth. So, for instance, you've had several authors who've used um, aliens that are sort of cat-like, and their culture tends to be cat-like in terms of dominance patterns and this, that, and the other thing. Um, or you you have elephants are used or, you know, whatever. And I think you wind up with, a number one, a really simplistic kind of animal behavioralism, which doesn't even apply in the animal world, and makes really very little sense as the basis for a intelligent species. Um, I mean, there are reasons that it's hard to imagine any intelligent species getting very far if they don't develop a very complex and sophisticated culture, you know, if they they stick to rigid animal behavior patterns, it's really hard to imagine them getting very far. Part of what I want to do with the novel is develop a really interesting and quite different alien species. The trick to that, though, is you can't make them so alien that uh, because your readers are going to be human beings. And so they have to have enough resonance with human beings that... that, um, you know your audience can read it and and empathize and and identify enough with the aliens that they can get into the story. So what I wound up doing was combining a couple things. I had I had for many years been fascinated by cephalopods. Just, you know, they are by far the most advanced and complex invertebrate on the planet earth. They're very intelligent. Uh, they're really fascinating creatures, especially when you consider they're mollusks and they're related to things like clams and oysters. Uh, and in particular, I was fascinated by their their uh, chromatophoric abilities, which is that octopuses and squids change color in response to, to different things in their environment and, and in terms of different emotional reactions. Um, so I thought it would be fascinating to develop an intelligent alien species or you can't really tell what someone's thinking or feeling by... because the terms are really kind of meaningless applied. It's a completely different alien species, and so the kind of issues of sexual orientation that that apply to humans are really just inapplicable. But if you're going to use an analog, that's what it is. It's basically most of the aliens are female. They're not sterile. I mean, they're not fertile, and they have sexual relations with each other.
1: That is the norm. norm, and then
2: yeah, and then you have a different sex relation where the, the, the much larger females who are able to breed, who are called mothers, they do have sexual relations with males, but that's considered only a normal pattern for them, not for most aliens. And in this instance, I had a, a female, a sterile female, she's a warrior, who develops a romantic relationship with a male, which is considered in that society uh, perverted. So in their terms, she's, she and her, her boyfriend, are, so to speak, are, are perverts, uh, even though in human terms they would be considered the norm. Um, so I did that partly just to switch things around because I thought it would make it interesting, and, and I wanted a uh, a character who is an outcast in that society, and this is an easy way of
1: doing it. Yeah, and you develop a great relationship between her and her much, much smaller male uh, lover, uh, Do I believe is his name.
2: Yeah, actually, the relationship I enjoyed the most was that I have a very young mother named Guo, who is one of the heroines of the book, and she winds up getting hooked up early on. Uh, fertile females, mothers, don't mate with one single male; they, they they mate with a male bond, a group of males, and so I develop actually a relationship, a romantic relationship between her and these six young males, and they're all very young, and. and uh, in alien terms, are the equivalent of teenagers. So it was kind of a challenge to develop a romance between alien teenagers that's completely different. I mean, they're squids, uh, basically. Uh, and I think it works. <laughs> but I, yeah. You know, I think readers get into it. But uh, that was kind of fun. Uh, yeah, it, it's different. Uh, there's part of the reason I did it is because it, it made me scratch, you know, in terms of figuring out how will it all shake down and how um, you, you always have to remember that when you introduce intelligence into the mix, the behavior i mean all intelligent creatures are animals on one level, but you introduce intelligence in the mix and it really changes everything i mean it you know you, you're not going to get any kind of simple uh animal like reactions you're just not
1: how did culture come I, about on this on this world? The world's called Ishtar. There's two different species, too, that are uh, intelligent.
2: Yes. There are two species that are closely related, Um, the Gukai, who are the dominant species, and then there's another species called the Owak, who are larger. They're related. They're very closely related. But the Owak are larger, but they're more primitive. They're, they're honestly just simply not as smart, as bright as the. Uh, they're intelligent, but they're you know the level of intelligence is more like what you'd expect from Homo habilis or maybe Australopithecines than from Homo erectus. The re- where I got that idea from was actually an essay by Stephen J. Gould. Um, the title of which, if I remember right, is that human equality is a contingent fact of history, and what he was. What, is, what he talked about in the essay is he said it is simply a fact that's contingent on the history of how the human species develop. It's just simply a fact that human beings all belong to one species, and therefore the level of advancement and intelligence of the entire species is essentially the same across the board. Um, but he said that did not have to have developed that way. It could have happened that we would have wound up with two intelligent species for a while on the planet, which actually did happen for a while when you had Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalus coexisting for tens of thousands of years. And then eventually Homo neanderthalus vanished. Um, They used to think they just were driven to extinction. Now, based on genetic evidence, it's clear that there was a certain amount of interbreeding between Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalus. But the point is, you could have had a situation where you had actually two different species that that might have been able to interbreed, but they're still two different species, one of which was clearly superior to the other. It wasn't quite there. You know, the issue of equality therefore poses, or how how you handle relations between those two species poses a a trickier, more complex um, moral and philosophical issue than you face in our world where the whole human race is one species and so although there's been an enormous amount of bigotry and intolerance and prejudice and, and along racial lines throughout human history, on one basic level you can just say that's all bullshit, pardon my French, and solving that issue in moral terms has been been very easy. I, in theory, of course, it's a lot harder to do in practice, but you know, that you can just simply say all human beings are equal, that's the way it is, and well, that's it. But what if that weren't true? What if you did have a species that was a separate species? It was also intelligent. There weren't animals, but they either weren't as intelligent, or their intelligence didn't manifest itself in ways that enabled them to be good at military, pack, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. You'd so have I a, added that into the mix, also.
1: You'd have a ready-made slave caste, it seems to me. Yeah. If somebody wanted to go enslaving people. They also.
2: Yeah, and then I also added a further complication because it turns out that the problem the humans face is that they cannot in- digest the food on that planet. And it looks like they're all going to starve to death, but it turns out it's a little bit gross. But this is a pattern used by some animals, There are actually quite a number of animals, where the, 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 the offspring, the very young animals, basically eat the food that's been eaten and regurgitated by their parents um, because that breaks it down. Uh, the, 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 the you know the digestive cycle. and it turns out human beings can survive if they eat food that's been regurgitated by this other more primitive layer of um, or group of aliens called the Owak, which means that humans are, be- are completely dependent on the owak, which means that the owak thereby have suddenly gained very ferocious group of champions because they may not be able to defend themselves very well but human beings really can and then part of the ingredient in the story which I thought would be usually whenever you have aliens and humans mixing in stories and especially in movies but even in novels it tends to be the aliens who are the the scary critters and humans who are not. And what I did in Mother of Demons is I switched it around, and the title comes from the fact that from the alien point of view, these humans are really kind of demons. They move much faster than the aliens do, to the point where it's even hard sometimes then to be able to follow what they're doing. Uh, and they're really scary uh, and very dangerous. So that's where the title Mother of Demons comes from. But, uh, Anyway, it was, uh, you know, another interesting little, too. I tried to put in as many twists and turns in that story as I could figure out so that it would read. I didn't want it to read, you know, this was going to be my first novel. It all worked out well, and I didn't want it to read, you know, just generic by the numbers. Yeah. Kind of writing, Which I think it
1: doesn't. I agree completely, and we're putting it out in a leather-bound edition instead of forgetting that it exists. (laughs) I think it was pretty successful. Yeah, yeah,
2: no, I'm quite quite happy with the book, even to this day.
1: Uh So tell us about the humans. They crash-landed, they arrived with a knowledge base, but they don't really have the tech uh, still. Is there any way to preserve modern culture if you absolutely have no technological or trading base to start with, if it's robbed from you, but you have the knowledge? They
2: don't. Yeah, well, yeah, I believe you can, um, and I believe they do. What what you have to do is the same process that I had my heroes in the 1632 series doing. Only it's much more extreme. of other demons, in this process I call gearing down. You you have the knowledge, but you can't recreate the tech base you started from. You just you don't begin to have the pyramid of tools to make tools to make tools to make tools. To make, tools. But you do still have the knowledge and. Uh, one of the things that I think people tend to drastically underestimate is the incredible resilience of modern industrial societies. Um, I know I, I, I periodically get in arguments with people who talk about how this or that is going to cause a catastrophe and, you know, it could be all kinds of things like collapse of the electrical grid, asteroid strikes, whatever. And you know I'll we'll be doomed. And you know, and what I always say to them is, "Can please explain to me how the devastation would be any worse than what Europe looked like at the end of World War II?" I mean, all of Central Europe was bombed flat—literally bomb flat. Literally bomb flat. Um, most of Europe was basically just a vast, barren wasteland. And half a century later, it had sprung back. The population actually at the end of World War II was larger than was at the beginning of World War II, even in the areas most hit by the devastation. The thing about advanced industrial societies is they're really, really re- resilient. And that's because of that knowledge base, which primitive societies don't have. They simply don't have. So if they get hammered down flat by some kind of catastrophe, pulling themselves out is a really difficult, difficult process. But if you retain that, that that information network, you've got an enormous leg up. Now, it's much harder in the sixteen in the Mother Demon universe than the sixteen thirty two universe. You only got a handful of adults instead of a whole town. They don't have laptops, you know. I mean, they don't have any of that. Um, <coughs> for one thing. I wrote the book before computers had really. I mean, they existed, but they weren't the kind of omnipresent feature of life there today. Um, so the the information base tends to be retained inside people's heads more than it is recorded anywhere, but it's still there, and I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah.
1: Well, also with this knowledge base comes <clears throat> uh, knowledge of history, and our you know our main human character Indira, um, she was a historian. Uh, how does she propose? Or can she not replicate the like the Mongol horde, of or Sparta, or you know the litany of heart you know Dacal, the litany of horrible things that humans have done to win or well, tried to do to win and then lost. Um, yeah. This this is her great fear, right?
2: Yeah, that's her great fear. It's what paralyzes her for you know most of the novel. Or um, what she finally. The epiphany she finally has uh, in at the great battle at the end of the book, and it's largely the character Nakurum who her actions that that bring her to it. Is that you can't separate the misery of human history with its advancement because they're just part of the same process. Um, in other words. You, There's no – an advanced, ethically sound, you know, democratic, egalitarian society does not and cannot –
1: There's, um, you mentioned before there's a religion that's the, it's the birth of a, of a larger uh, monotheist, not monotheistic, but just, uh, a non-God-based or animistic religion. Um, and there's even a St. Paul-like figure in the book who is Ushulabang. And um, th- are the tenets of Golaku, this, this uh, Buddha, it's kind of Taoism too, or Taoism, Anything, is that your religion or is it just made up book stuff?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's um, uh, I, I actually designed it, there, there's nothing really quite like it, because I designed it based on the principles of dialectical logic rather than formal logic, which no religion I know of has ever done. Um, and what I mean by that is that it has no answers, it simply keeps posing questions. Um, which is one of the central tenets of the founder of that religion. There is no answer, there are only the questions. Um, it makes it very open-minded, and very dynamic. As far as the ethos of it is concerned, it's, it's more akin to something like Buddhism or Taoism or you know, the Far Eastern religions than it is the Judeo-Christian traditions, because there is no deity as such. Uh, there's no god figure. Um, they, they, uh, the religion doesn't really concern itself very much with big questions of cosmology and cosmogony, the way the Western religious tradition does. Which is, in fact, true of, of Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism. They, you know, they don't really spend a whole lot of time contemplating or figuring out, you know, where's the universe come from, who created it, so on and so forth. It's just not what they're concerned with. They're concerned with basically behavior and how
1: you should act and codes of conduct. Well, there's a, I mean, there's an analog to, I mean, Galaku, your, your original, he both seemed like a a sort of drunken monk, but he also had a lot of Christ-like qualities because, you know, I mean, Jesus didn't care. Yeah,
2: he, no, he did, he did, yeah, he does. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm cribbing from a lot of things. Yes, he does, and there's a constant tendency after, um, after her death, to, to to have her be created in, into a godlike figure, and and her disciple Ushulabang keeps fighting against it. Uh, there's a uh, there's a scene in the book where the humans come across a great big statue of what they later find was was Guwaku and and then Ushulabang when she comes across she destroys the statue because she considers it. Ridiculous. Um, so it, there's no direct human analog to that religion now. Uh, it's kind of, a, uh, to some degree, it's patterned after Buddhism, but but the the central philosophical tenets are not Buddhist at all. They're, uh, they're they're based. They're really, and honestly, they're more ethereal. They're more abstract. They're based on more of, of just purely logical ways of looking at the world and, and dealing with things and i don't also you know, I don't, you know I, I don't really develop i mean it's there and i live some basic elements of it and, but it's, you know, the reader gets more of an impression than any i mean i'm not trying to lay out all the various tenets and so forth cuz
1: i'm writing a novel yeah that it's but there are there's so many cool little philosophical seeds in uh, mother of demons as well as uh, some some great Discussion of battle tactics and human history. So, the book is Mother of Demons, special leather bound edition by Eric Flint. It's now at booksellers. These will go fast, so get it while you can. Eric, thanks so much for being with us today and talking about Mother of Demons. Sure. Sure. I enjoyed it. And now, here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, is read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's
0: Hard Magic. As the storm clouds parted, they spotted the Tokugawa before it spotted them, which was easy to do since it was the size of a skyscraper flipped on its side and was running with all of its lights blazing. It was a thousand feet lower than they were, but only a mile ahead. Will you look at that, Lance whistled. It's huge. Forget that, Faye said. There's two of them. Francis followed her pointing finger. Sure enough, there was another vessel ahead of the triangular Tokugawa. Once again, her weird gray eyes proved superior to everyone else's. This craft was also wedge-shaped, but more bulbous. It was only running a few lights, so its overall size was hard to determine, but it had to be at least as big as the flagship. What is that thing? Mr. Chandler, the accountant, had joined them in the control center. I believe that is a Kaga-class super-dreadnought. How do you know that? Because UBF made a fortune selling the design to the Imperium, the accountant replied. That's one of ours. I'm afraid your grandfather didn't really worry about the embargo. Weapons? Lance asked hesitantly. Unknown. We just provided the basic hull, and they worked out the rest, but probably at least equivalent to a Great War battleship. And it has a hold that can fit Depending on the size A whole bunch of planes Lance scratched his beard Define bunch, Mr. Chandler Forty or fifty That nice pirate captain has two Fay pointed out Now, I'm not an expert or nothing But that doesn't seem quite fair Francis bit his lip If it had still just been a rescue mission He would have called it off It didn't make sense to trade a bunch of lives for one, even though they'd probably have to knock Dan out first and tie him down, but this was too big now. The Tell was on that thing. Call the Marauder. Warn them and get their ETA. The battleship won't be able to shoot at us if we're tethered to the Tokugawa. Lance looked at him slyly. You're sounding more like a captain already, kid. You want the hat back? Not after it's been on your smelly head. F.S. Bulldog Marauder Captain Southunder put the mirror down. The news had been grim. In 20 minutes, they'd break the edge of the storm. Sullivan held on to the wall of the stateroom as the dirigible was slammed back and forth by the wind. The creaking and flapping was making him nervous. It would really not be fair if they crashed before they even had the chance to get shot down. Two ships, which also means that the crew of the flagship will be reinforced with more men, Southunder said slowly. Not to mention Maddie, who was probably capable of killing all of them by himself, but he didn't bring that up. Dealing with his brother was personal business. What are you going to tell your crew? Sullivan asked. They were pirates, after all, and mutiny was a distinct possibility. Southunder smiled. Why, the truth, of course. He stood and walked from the room, not seeming to notice that the entire place was swaying violently back and forth and rattling like they were about to fly apart at any second. Remember how I was talking about loyalty? Let's see if I was right, because I've already been wrong far too much for one day. "'I hope you ain't on a roll,' Sullivan muttered as he followed. Most of the marauder's crew had assembled in the little galley. They were a motley bunch of toughs, armed to the teeth, outside the law, perfectly adjusted to killing, and they were about to be asked to go on a deadly mission to help a bunch of folks who not only didn't care about them, but didn't even know they existed. Southunder stopped at the front of the room. Sullivan was expecting some big display, maybe a pep talk, like the kind General Roosevelt had given them before second sum. Fat lot of good that had done. Instead, Southunder sat on the end of a table and folded his arms. He didn't even raise his voice. "'Well, boys, I've got bad news. We've got two Imperium ships. Both of them are bigger and have more guns than we do, with probably ten times the crew.' There's probably going to be several iron guards on board, not to mention ninjas, and who knows what other kinds of terrible blood magic. What's the bad news? Barnes asked jokingly. <laughs> One of the ships is a kaga, which means that it is ringed in 37 millimeter long-range cannons, and a main 10-inch gun. Rumor is that they might even have a peace ray. If that don't get us, the host of biplanes piloted by fanatics probably will. I won't lie. Our odds of survival are about... none. He was completely honest. So we're running? A muscular Polynesian with tattoos all over his face asked. No, Mr. Payonga, we're not, because aboard one of those ships is a super weapon that is about to destroy a quarter of the United States. And once it falls, then the rest of the world will surrender. The chairman will rule the world and everyone like us will be extinct within a year, tops. This job isn't about the loot, crew. I'm asking you to do this because it's the right thing to do. Stick with me and I'll do everything I can to make sure we make it through. This is madness, said the badly scarred Ken. I'd take volunteers, but we're either all in or all out. There's no time to drop anyone off. We either fight together or we run. And if we run, you'll have to kill me first. I can't promise we'll live, but we'll die free men, and our great-grandkids will tell stories about the bravery that goes on tonight. There was a tiny voice from the back of the room. I... Not have babies yet? Like to have babies some day? Lady Origami squeezed between the burly men. She had neatly folded a piece of rice paper into an intricate shape. She tossed it into the air, and the miniature blimp almost seemed like it would fly, but it burst into magical flame and was consumed instantly. But only babies I make be from Imperium rapers if chairman win. I fight with Captain. I didn't join to prove I'm brave. I joined to make money," Parker said. But then he smiled, and to kill some Imperium. I'm in. One by one, the pirates added their assent. The last to speak was the young American, Barnes. Do I get to take a Raptor out and die in a glorious dogfight? Yes," Southunder answered. Barnes grinned. I wouldn't miss it. Southunder nodded calmly. Let's go murder some Imperium dogs then. Every last one. Every last one, all the pirates shouted together. Sullivan followed Southunder back into the hall, figuring he could learn a thing or two about leadership from this man. You didn't tell them that the chairman himself would be on board. Southunder gave him a sad little smile. They're brave, Sullivan not suicidal.
1: That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Amanda Holton for editing Snips and Slices, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the triumphant cry of approval from the entire population of planet Earth's mollusks for an author finally seeing their true potential, and free passage to dialectic paradise when next the kraken rises to Eric Flint, author of Mother of Demons, now in beautiful signed octopus-bound, I mean leather-bound edition at booksellers everywhere. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. Keep reaching for the stars.